As we pass the half-year mark of facing life in a pandemic, many of us have adapted to what is often referred to as the new normal, while others are continuing to encounter new and significant crises at work and at home. Zoom fatigue is real, kindness and compassion can take more effort than expected, and what's gratitude got to do with it? How to manage our stress, be more mindful, and achieve better balance may seem ideal in concept, but overwhelming to commit to, or even figure out where to start. I'm Jennifer Richter, Senior Producer and Education Specialist at the Federal Judicial Center. And today, I'm talking with two very special guests about a topic that is on everyone's minds, managing our health and wellness during COVID-19 and beyond. My first guest is someone who is familiar to most of you in our judiciary audience. Judge Jeremy Fogel served as the director of the Federal Judicial Center from 2011 to 2018. Currently, Judge Fogel serves as the first executive director of the Berkeley Judicial Institute, a center at Berkeley Law School, whose mission is to build bridges between judges and academics and to promote an ethical, resilient, and independent judiciary. Welcome back, Judge Fogel. Thank you, Jen. It's great to be with you and the FJC again. My next guest is Dr. Docker Keltner, the founding director of the Greater Good Science Center and a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley. Among his many accolades, Dr. Keltner is the host of the Greater Good Science Center's award-winning podcast, The Science of Happiness. The best-selling author of the books, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence, and Born to be Good, and co-editor of The Compassionate Instinct. Thank you for joining us today, Docker. It's great to be with you, Jen. Over the course of the next hour, we'll be talking about a variety of challenges that we are all facing during this pandemic, and my guests will offer some manageable actions that we can take to achieve a better sense of balance, mindfulness, and happiness. I'd like to start with a quick bit of history on how the two of you ended up working together. How did you realize you shared such a passion for mindfulness? Judge Fogel, let's start with you. I had been interested in mindfulness for a long time. I had been practicing mindfulness for more than 20 years. And uh, when I came to the FJC and one of my former colleagues in in the Northern District of California, who was a good friend of, of uh, Dr. Keltner, and he said, you guys should meet each other. You have very uh, a lot of things in common, a lot of common interests, including a passion for mindfulness. And so he made the introduction and the rest is history. Dr. Keltner, do you have anything to add? Yeah, you know, so Jen, at the Greater Good Science Center, we've been uh, devoting 20 years of our staff of 12 people to disseminating the science of mindfulness and kindness and gratitude to broad audiences. And what I am most excited about is when I get to collaborate with people in really cutting edge work in interesting realms of our society. So I've worked with police chiefs, I've worked with veterans, I've worked uh, in criminal justice reform. I think it's one of the most important things that this science can be extended to is the reasoning and self-care of people who really are the foundation of a just society. So it was, it was thrilling to be part of this. Now let's jump right in and talk a little bit about the proverbial work-life balance. That's a phrase we hear often, but what does it actually mean to each of you? And what actions are you taking to create that balance while working full-time at home? I think one of the things that you achieve when you pay attention to your health and well-being, and in particular when, when you practice mindfulness, is you, you achieve a sense of where your center is, you know, where your equanimity lies. And I think uh, you, you know when you're where you want to be. And I think that that's something that doesn't come immediately. It takes time to get there. But once once you get there, um, then you can see, well, you know, uh, I'm off and I'm off in this way or I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a lot more anxious than I want to feel. Or I'm a lot more tired than I want to feel or I, I'm feeling disconnected from my loved ones or I'm I'm, I'm feeling like, uh, you know, I, I, I just need to sleep more. You know, and, and so you, you develop this awareness of your own needs, you know, where you are when you're when you're centered and where you are when you're not. And and so what work life balance has come to mean to me is that it, it it's it's setting my life up so that I can stay centered as often as I 
as I possibly can. I can't stay centered all the time. It's, it's kind of like an airplane, and this is an old corny analogy, but it's like an airplane that's flying from the West Coast to the East Coast is always off course, but it keeps getting back on course. And I think um, that's kind of how I think about work-life balance, is that you don't, mm-hmm. don't want to get too far off course, because then you're not going not gonna to be where you need to be. Thank you, Judge Fogel. I like the airplane analogy, and I've heard you use it before. I think it resonates because science tells us that, metaphorically speaking, if we veer off course from doing the things we know have a positive impact on our mind and body, even a 1% shift can significantly alter our trajectory and have a negative impact on our health and wellness. How about you, Docker? What does work-life balance mean to you, and how do you create balance while working remotely? Yeah, you know, Jen, I mean, I think that's one of the most important questions we can be asking about our society, among a couple of others. Uh, You know, we know, uh, as I teach my undergrads, Americans now work about 140 hours more a year compared to a generation ago. So we're working really hard. And it's striking what Jeremy suggested. And I have the same experience, which is that with these mindful or contemplative practices, which are many, I, you know, I can only get five to 10 minutes in a day. But what I found, and this is true in the science of mindfulness, is that if you, if you get that five to 10 minutes a day of breathing or gratitude or kindness, whatever it is, getting outside, uh, it starts to shift your work. And so my work, which is 55 hours a week for 30 years, is is so gratifying and so rewarding because of mindfulness, because I suddenly see that if I orient to other people, collaboration is really exciting, always filled with wonder. So it's it's very much dovetailing with what Jeremy said of finding your balance and purpose in the work uh, is the first step. It's not a matter of quantity. It's a matter of quality. And I think what we both are committed to is like figuring out how to how to help people achieve better quality in the way they spend their time. It's so important and a luxury, I might add, to even be able to set aside five minutes a day to help us achieve a better work-life balance. And I know sometimes we really do have to force ourselves because I think one of the many challenges we're facing right now is being able to get away from our computer. So many people are working harder than ever, spending more time on their computers because they are always at home and it's right there. Others indicate they're having a much harder time focusing because they are at home all the time. Looking at how you engage with your work colleagues and even your peers, what impacts are you seeing with people since we've shifted from in-person communication and collaboration to our forced reliance online? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting. Um, I actually think that, you know, anytime that you look at the, the literature on what is technology doing to human psychology, often it's counterintuitive, right? Um, And so with respect to online work and so forth, I'm finding certain kinds of work um, actually more gratifying, more rewarding, and also, in a sense, more bottom-up, like more people are contributing to it. So, you know, certain kinds of conversations with collaborators, um, certain sharing of information has become richer, I think, in this digital moment with offerings like this. So I think that's exciting. What I find really suffering is the small group, family-like core to certain kinds of work. There, you know, I work with my lab, which is about 14 people. There's no substitute for just being next to each other for just the spontaneous stuff that arises. So it's ironic. I think that in some sense, we're sharing more information, sharing more wisdom in these brief Zoom snippets, but we're hungering very much so for the that core of work, which which you do in small teams. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with that. It resonates with my experience. Uh, you know, two, two things that may be relevant to the judicial folks who are listening to this. I mean, I'm doing a uh, study right now with a with a colleague. We're doing a research study about um, law clerk diversity, and the key element of that research is is doing extended interviews with with judges. And we originally had planned to travel all over the country to 
spend time with the judges in their chambers and, you know, really create an atmosphere where the judges would feel safe and we could have these intimate conversations. And we haven't been able to do that. And so we've done all of our interviews on Zoom. And it really lines up with what Dacker just said, that in that context, we actually are able to have very candid conversations. People have been very forthcoming. I mean, you can make eye contact. You can can talk to what people are saying. But it, it isn't, in a way, it would almost be too intimate if you were sitting in their chambers. You know, it would, it would, it would create, I mean, it would change things somehow. And I think yeah. for the kind, of, the kind of work that we're doing now, uh, it's, it's really good. And I think a lot of meetings are like that. A lot of meetings I've been part of, a lot of conversations and conferences that, that at a sort of a business level, you can do more uh, good actually using this medium. But what you don't get is the coffee breaks. You don't get to go out to dinner. You don't get to just sort of hang out. How are your kids? You know, what are you doing lately? You know, you don't get that kind of um, socializing. And I think that's a loss. Um, and I think that, you know, that's an element of life that, that I certainly miss. And I think a lot of people do. But but I, I think it's been better than people feared. Uh, I think that uh, it's, it's opened up, certainly opened my eyes as to what's what's possible in communication. I think a lot of the fear and anxiety around relying on online technology has subsided, but there is still a lot of uncertainty around our individual and collective futures. Layered on top of that are the deep concerns about both local and global economic impacts, social unrest, political turmoil, and climate change. All of these elements combined have created a great deal of anxiety for people, what suggestions can you offer our listeners for managing their personal anxiety? Let's be honest. This is an age of anxiety, right? This isn't people over-reporting or being neurotic. This is real. Um, and a lot of data say that at almost every age, people are feeling much more anxious right now. There's data coming out of the CDC showing about 40% of Americans are showing evidence of a clinical level of anxiety or depression or PTSD, which is probably two to three times the rate of what you would expect normally. So it's real. And I get this question in the most poignant ways, you know, from a a mom whose teenage son is really struggling and young people are struggling right now. Like, what do I do? And I always say, you know, and this comes out of the science of happiness at the Greater Good Science Center. Number one, find one way to calm down. You know, be it through a mindful practice, a mindful breathing. I do a, a, a loving kindness meditation where I just wish other people good wishes. So that's number one. Number two is um, pick one positive state you love and, and just build it into your day. It might be gratitude. For me, it's nature and awe and beauty, right? And just go get 10 minutes of it. And then number three is, you know, and Jeremy hinted at this. He and brought it in with poignancy. Um, remember social connections. When people are depressed, they're often very lonely. It's an epidemic. So just remind yourself in your schedule, like, I need 15 minutes to share laughter with someone or a colleague, right? So, so find a way to find calm, pick one positive state, gratitude, contentment, laughter, and connect. And if you can do that, a ton of data suggests you'll be okay. Yeah. I think, I think that, you know, the one thing I would emphasize is just that it is happening to everybody. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not like, it's just you, you know, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling depressed. I mean, I think it's, I think there may be a social stigma about that, you know, and, and people feel like, Oh, you know, there's what's wrong with me. Well, there's really nothing wrong with you. I mean, this is, this is actually a fairly, uh, standard reaction to to real circumstances that we're that we're dealing with, um, and and so then it's it's like okay, um, what do I do about it? I know that when I get anxious and depressed, which which I do on a daily basis, mm-hmm. um, rather than just say, oh my god, I'm anxious and depressed. I'm gonna first of all I acknowledge that I'm anxious and depressed. I think it's not like pretending that I'm not. Is acknowledging it's part of it, and then and then it's. All right, well, what can I do here to help myself restore my equanimity? And, you know, in my case, I mean, I, I love getting out and getting exercise and, and, you know, staying as fit as I can. Uh, gratitude's a big one for me. 
um, and um, contact with people. I think that's really an important point too. And I think that's been one of the real challenges of the pandemic is that it's harder to do that. I mean, there's people who really literally don't have anyone in their bubble other than themselves, you know, and that's that's very, very hard. And I think it's just, it just makes everything harder. You know, my, my family is split between the two coasts. So I have uh, one one son and daughter-in-law and two grandkids who I don't get to see. And so we, we try to FaceTime every day. And that, that really does help. But I have a daughter and son-in-law and two grandkids here where, where I am in DC now. And and I see them every day. And um, those relationships have just meant the world to me. You know, people who are like-minded about things, say like-minded about politics, which we're not going to talk about, but people who are, you know, like-minded about politics, they're like-minded about something in, in, in the world. You know, they, they'll get together and they'll kind of feed off each other's anxiety and depression. And that's not a good thing either. And, yeah. you know, I think that it feels like companionship, but it, but it really isn't. You know, it's, it's the wrong kind of companionship. It, it doesn't make you feel better. You know, it makes you getting more anxious and depressed, you know? So it's like, I think it's important to, you know, always keep your eye on the ball. That's such a critical point. I think sometimes it's easy for us to surround ourselves with anyone we feel in alignment with for whatever reason that is, especially if we are feeling isolated or disconnected. But if that person or news source is perpetually negative and we allow ourselves to get caught up in that same way of thinking, it can have such a detrimental effect on our well-being. So it really is important to check in with ourselves and make sure we are taking positive actions to manage our personal anxiety. Up next, it's important to take steps to manage our personal health and wellness. But what about having compassion for those around us? How does that help us to lead better lives? Stay tuned. At this point, we've been talking a lot about what we can do to help ourselves and manage our personal well-being, which of course ultimately has an impact on other people. For some of us, the battle is being isolated during the pandemic, that loneliness that we've all acknowledged. And for others, it's not being isolated enough and having everyone in the family at home all the time. I personally strive to abide by the quote, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle, which has been attributed to a variety of different authors. Translating this specifically into our work environment, Judge Fogel, what can we do regardless of our role in the judiciary to support our colleagues as they navigate the various stressful battles that they're facing? Mm, great question. Wow. You know, I think the first thing, and your, your quote, suggested is to just remember that everybody everybody is is dealing with it not not just us individually but everybody around us is and and that it's the the, the sense of connection to others you know i mean my my orientation to this whole area really centers around the idea of compassion and kindness and being able to see other people as my fellow humans trying to be kind to the people around you, trying to be understanding of them, uh, cut them slack uh, when when you can. It's hard in the judiciary, I have to say, because the judiciary is a very hierarchical place. Uh, I think just the structure of it is such that uh, it's all sort of built around authority. And and I think, you know, there's there's a place for that. I mean, you need higher courts to review the decisions of lower courts. And, you know, you, you, you have you need judges who are responsible for making the decisions and the consequences of those decisions. And, but I think everybody who works in the judiciary, regardless of what their role is, you know, is contributing to the enterprise. And I think to the extent that hierarchy aside, we can be kind to each other. And, and it can be in very small ways, you know. How are your kids? You know, how are you doing? Um, everybody, everybody healthy at home. Everybody staying safe. I think that creates an atmosphere where people feel more cared about, and I just think that's it's 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 it's, it's something we can do in being intentional and saying, you know, for the people in my world, you know, I'm going to find ways to be kind and compassionate toward them. You know, I have to say, it comes back to you. It does indeed. 
Kindness and compassion can do as much for us as it can for those around us. So let's dig a little deeper into that. Docker, listening to your podcast, The Science of Happiness, has been a great resource for me personally, and I know others during this time. Mm. Adding on to what Judge Fogel has said, I'd like to invite you to talk about your research on compassion. Yeah. How does this extend to what he's just expressed in terms of supporting our colleagues in the judiciary? Yeah, thank you. You know, um, <laughs> that's a deep question because it's one of my life's missions. But, um, you know, our culture, Western European culture, has been pretty hostile to compassion. Um, I'll quote Ayn Rand, the philosopher, that if any civilization is to survive, it is altruism that men have to reject. Um, and that hostility you see in a lot of different realms of inquiry. Um, and, and it, you know, and then a suspicion of this state of being kind to other people and wanting their welfare to be lifted up. In point of fact, the new science of compassion finds uh, it is part of our evolutionary history. Uh, we wouldn't have survived as a species without compassion. It has very old regions of the brain that are activated when we feel compassion. It involves chemicals in your blood like oxytocin. And perhaps most relevant to our audience here, if you just stay close to compassion, your work colleagues do better. Uh, you render better decisions. People like you more. Your organization has fewer sick days. So, you know, when Judge Fogel said, like, all of this kind of begins with kindness or compassion, that's, that's a, a, a deep insight that traces back millennia in our cultural history and evolutionary history. And if you do that, you'll be you'll do pretty well. You know, and and it is it's it's ancient and and it's 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 deeply human. And I, I think sometimes there's misdirection in, in the judiciary. Right. And I'm not saying this for any political purpose whatsoever. But I mean, there was a big controversy, uh, you know, when President Obama said, you know, in 2009, he wanted judges who had empathy. And, and some people heard that as, I want judges who are going to decide cases based on their empathy rather than the law. That's not how I heard it, but there were people who heard it that way. And, and, and I think, and as I said at the time, I mean, that would be inappropriate. I mean, judges can't decide cases based on their feelings. They have to decide cases based on the law. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for empathy or that there isn't a place for compassion. Compassion doesn't mean that you have somebody who committed a horrible crime and left innocent victims lying around, that you know, you, by being compassionate to that person, that means you give them a lenient sentence. Um, I think that's what people hear sometimes when you talk about compassion and kindness. And and I think those things are, are really quite different from each other. I mean, sometimes your, your judicial decision-making can be informed by compassion and kindness sometimes and i think more often the way you treat people can be and should be informed by compassion and kindness uh i, I have i mean one example that comes to mind for me and i said when i was sitting on the district court uh and i was in san jose california which the the major type of criminal case that we had was 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 immigration uh, we had uh, illegal reentry following deportation and we had a lot of those cases and they were very, very sad cases. I mean, these were people who had reentered multiple times, couldn't stay out of trouble, would get picked up for a drunk driving violation or a petty theft or something like that. Then they would end up, end up having an immigration offense charge that resulted in their going to prison for multiple years and then getting deported. And it was all pretty much a done deal. It wasn't like I had any leeway. I mean, there were there were agreed sentences and there were negotiated plea agreements. Um, and and in some cases, the people were bad actors, you know, and I would read the, the probation report and I would see, well, OK, this person has committed violent crimes. And, you know, they're just they're just not somebody who's, you know, modeled the human race in a very good way. But in, but in a lot of these cases, actually, you just had people who had these these really kind of miserable lives, you know, that, that they had had situations where they were in dire poverty in their home country, they're, they're um, perhaps even under physical threat. There were, you know, there were some really, really tough circumstances. And those circumstances were so bad that it was actually 
less of a worry for them to come to the United States and risk getting arrested and, and put in prison. I mean, so we had a lot of people like that. And, and when I sentenced those people, I found it was very important, even though I was I didn't have any leeway on the sentence because they were usually uh, negotiated plea agreements, uh, to find some way to reach out to them as, on a human level. And that's, I think, where compassion really does play a role in judging, uh, that it's just remembering that, that everybody that you run into uh, is a human being, you know, and that there's something in them that uh, is is something you share with them. You know, we're all we're all in this together. And so so, um, yeah, I, I think I think this is a very important piece. And I think that the law sometimes crowds that out, you know, again, by being by being kind of linear instead of you know, remembering that we are people dealing with other people. I mean, and this speaks to just how we need to understand together what something like empathy or compassion really is. And science is useful there, as I hope uh, this conversation reveals. I was on a panel with the Dalai Lama and, you know, who promotes compassion. And I said, should we forgive everybody of all their crimes? And he, you know, and he laughed at me and he said, no, you have to practice tough compassion. Mm -hmm. And what the empirical data show is if you practice kindness, right, and compassion, and you're sentencing in a complicated case like that, your mind is thinking about other people, right? It's thinking about societal outcomes. It's thinking about uh, the, the framework of law, and you actually render more informed, balanced judgments and decisions out of a state of compassion because of the broadening of the view uh, that it gives you towards society. So. So interesting to hear Jeremy reflect on that in that particular case. I, I think what you both have expressed is what a powerful and important distinction it is uh, to have that level of compassion. And I'm, I'm curious if you would be willing to talk for just a moment about the difference between compassion and forgiveness or the relationship between the two. For me, um, compassion is a feeling that I have toward everyone. You know, and, and how I express that is going to vary. And I, I'm actually the the particular statement from the Dalai Lama he made. That's one I've I've seen in some of his writings, and it's been very, uh, very helpful to me to have that clarification. It's not like just the the uh, you know every, everything is fine because that's not what he's saying. Forgiveness is a more specific act. I mean, I think of it as something in a relationship or in a interaction that you have with someone else um, that they've hurt you, you've hurt them, uh, you know, something has gone awry in that, in that uh, connection and you want to restore some type of um, connection that, that's, that's been lost or been harmed. And so forgiveness is a way that you do that. And it's, it's, really trying to put yourself in the other person's position and, and, and try to understand how they would have gotten to the point that they got to and how they, how they did what they did. And, and then sort of reaching a point where you can uh, accept that and, and, and let go of your feelings of hurt. I think that's really hard. Um, I think there are, there are people talking about, oh, forgiveness is this wonderful thing. And if you just practice forgiveness, everything is fine. I don't think you can forgive meaningfully in a lasting way until you've really acknowledged how badly you've been hurt or how badly you feel hurt. You know, it's not like, oh, forgiveness is good, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let bygones be by bygones. I mean, that, that actually doesn't work because the resentments just go find some other place to live. Uh, you know, you, you have to actually want to resurrect that relationship. And I think for a lot of us, it's just letting yourself feel that, letting yourself feel the, the grief and the anger and the, and the disappointment. And then saying, okay, it's important enough for me to have this relationship that I'm going to move past that. So I'm going to really try to understand what was going on in the other person's head. I mean, I, I can think of a couple times in my life where it was important enough for me to do that. And it usually was because the relationship was more important to me in the end than hanging on to my, my hurt about it. But it, it was a it was a real process, and it was a it was a it wasn't something you just kind of wake up some morning and said I'm going to forgive somebody. And thank you for sharing that on such a personal level, Judge Fogel. Docker, I can tell you would like to jump in and share something as well. Yeah, such deep observations there. You know, 
compassion is the desire to see less suffering in other people and other species. Sympathy is the specific feeling of that vis-a-vis somebody who's in pain or in need. So it is this, like, I want humans to experience less suffering. Uh, Forgiveness is when their harm's been perpetrated. And Jeremy brought in the key issue, which is compassion. It's, It's the dynamic of forgiveness. Do I feel compassion for somebody who stole something from me, who hurt me, who killed, et cetera? That it's the hardest work. Like, do I feel compassion towards the perpetrator? But don't forget yourself, yes. right? And and Jeremy used the word self care much earlier about you know creating cultures of of less stress and wellness. And self care for a lot of hardworking people, like probably in our audience, we often feel like ah, that's that's indulgence. But self care is vital. And with respect to forgiveness, there and I've taught this in prisons and to victims of sexual violence and the like, if there's a, a place where you feel like you can't feel compassion to the perpetrator, you prioritize your own self-care. So compassion's right at the heart of dynamics of forgiveness. Yeah, no, I think, and you know, and I will just add to this, there's a people I know in the judiciary who are interested in restorative justice, which is, which is about that. And I'm very interested in restorative justice. And one of the things that, that I have observed about it is there are, parts of the world where some form of restorative justice is baked into the culture. Um, I've, I've done some work in, in Central Asia, and that's it's certainly part of the culture there. Wow. But but, it, but in a way, you know, it's, it's an expectation almost that if somebody hurts you, you're going to forgive them. And, and to me, that's not really quite it, because sometimes it leaves the victim without a place to really take care of themselves. You know, it's like there's sort of this social expectation where they're expected to forgive the other person because it's more important culturally that they get along. I mean, real restorative justice is what Decker was just describing. The victim has to be able to to really fully feel, you know, what she or he has experienced and 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 be okay. And that has to be okay, you know. And then and they they have to make the decision to to uh, to forgive. And uh, they have to make it voluntarily, not under not under pressure. The the deepest forms of mediation are the ones where you really try to get the parties speaking from their heart. You know, it's not just making a transactional decision to settle a case or something. But it's like, you know, what what's really going on here? I mean, you have to get down to the heart of the matter for the for the for the for the victim, and and that's not always easy to do, but it's, it's, it's worth it. I mean, it's transformative if you can actually do it, which is why I think restorative justice is so interesting. I think the distinction between forgiveness and compassion is really relevant right now because so many people are facing daily challenges in their roles, both at work and in their personal life. And it's important to know these distinctions and have tools that we can rely on to help us through. So to that, in the second part of our segment, we'll be talking about what are some of these tools gratitude, mindfulness, and even music that can help us manage our stress and achieve balance during COVID-19. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Richter, and I'm speaking with Judge Jeremy Fogel of the Berkeley Judicial Institute and Dr. Docker Keltner of the Greater Good Science Center and University of California, Berkeley. In your work, you both identify the importance of self-care, mindfulness, and gratitude. Let's talk about what each of these mean and why practicing them is so important. Docker, let's begin with you. Self-care is important because uh, I think in a lot of sectors, uh, people are too hard on themselves. Um, and too self-critical. So self-care is, is a good way to think about how am I going to give myself uh, 10 minutes a day that just, you know, balance me. Gratitude. We live in a culture uh, where we often forget to just take a moment to recognize ex- what's extraordinary about our lives that we've been given by fate or context or people. And mindfulness because Everything is conspiring us to make us less mindful right now, you know, which is your smartphone, Zoom technology, uh, and, and, you know, pandemic, uh, economic issues, et cetera. 
although this conversation has been filled with mindfulness for me. And then I'll just say really quickly, why, why is this important? And that was really the question I took on 15, 20 years ago um, when I entered into this literature scientifically and then with teaching. And it's important because it's good for your body. <laughs> you know, we find that being outdoors is good for your immune system, as one example. It's good for your mind. Uh, most studies find this stuff makes you better at the work you do. And it's good for your relationships. Uh, and almost every relationship does better from parenting to partnerships to work if you're a little bit grateful or if you are asking questions in a mindful orientation. The three topics you cited are really important given this moment in our culture. And, and it's just, you know, in my view, I'll give you this stat. Um, if I think if you add this stuff up, it gives you about 10 years of life expectancy. And you can't find anything that a doctor can recommend that will beat that. Um, even eating red meat and drinking vodka and the like. I mean, <laughs> this stuff really changes how, how you live. Well, sign me up. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree with that. And, and the, the other thing, because you know, our culture is so uh, performance-oriented, is, is it actually improves performance. Um, you know, and I, when I'm teaching mindfulness to skeptical audiences, you know, I have to first get by the fact that I'm from Northern California and people always need to get a good laugh out of that. And then, <laughs> and then you know, um, uh, I'll say, you know, if you don't have to buy into the whole, you know, countercultural view of things, you you can look at at places where these kinds of practices have made a difference in other parts of the world. And one of the most compelling things I've seen about it was is the military, in the Air Force and the Army, and you know that, that there are uh, in the curriculum of education for fighter pilots and for Army Rangers and things like that. There are uh, mindfulness practices to sharpen their their acuity so they can do those jobs. So, you know, it's it's not um, it's not to use a Northern California term. It's not a it's not a woo woo thing. You know, it's something that actually does it, it does extend your life. It does make you healthier. It does make you uh, more. Um, receptive and, and responsive to the people in your life and the situations in your life. And if you care about performance, I think it makes your performance more, you're more careful, you're more mindful in the way you do the work and that shows up in, in the outcome. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper into that. You're talking a lot about performance orientation and when we're stressed, it can feel really overwhelming to hear all the things that we could be doing to lead a better life when we feel like we can barely accomplish the simplest tasks in a day. Many of us struggle with the desire for immediate results. I certainly know I do. So what are some specific actions that people can take now in the short term to practice better self-care, better balance, or mindfulness? I would say that it's, it's a practice that to really start to get the, the deeper benefits of it takes, takes a long time. And that if, if you expect immediate change, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll probably be disappointed. That's often a, a thing I hear from people is, you know, well, I, I just can't sit and do nothing for 10 minutes. I mean, you know, I, I, I have things to do, you know. And I think you do have to approach it with a certain degree of patience. That, that said, I mean, I, I just think very simple things like breathing are something you can practice right now and, and that it, uh, it does change things. I mean, uh, in working with judges who have demeanor problems, which is another thing I've been doing lately, uh, the, the biggest source of demeanor problems for, for a lot of judges is they just react before they think, you know, and, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to get them not to react until they've had a chance to think. And, and so, so one of the things that you can do is say, if, if something triggers you, just breathe. Or just breathe anyway. I mean, just breathe before you go on the bench so you have a little more equanimity when you go out there. Even just that simple reminder to breathe is really helpful. I find that I'm often holding my breath and don't even realize I'm not breathing. So taking a deep breath. Docker, the same question to you. Whether it's in the realm of self-care or bringing better balance and mindfulness to someone's life, what is a specific action that a person can do to have that kind of an impact in their daily life? I think that the, the three things you can do that, uh, and it flows out of our conversation here, breathing 
changes your heart profile. Deep exhalations lower stress. They lower cortisol levels in your blood. A lot of Americans are, are breathing shallow and inhaling too much. So get into deep breathing. Figure out how to do that. I think gratitude is the, is the big winner in some sense in the happiness science. Everybody likes it. I teach it in prisons, and they find prisoners find reasons to practice gratitude uh, and in kindness. And find a, a practice. So mine is uh, a few different phrases where I orient kindness towards other people. And I'll just do it to one person, to five people. Sometimes if I take 10 minutes, I may do 12 people. And you come out of that for, you know, I did it last night. Today, I suddenly was like, wow, I feel kind towards all these people coming at me. Um, so I would say breathing, gratitude, kindness. That's about six to eight minutes a day. And, and, and it'll get you rolling for this long-term practice that Jeremy's alluding to. I think that's really achievable. Jen, can I just, just add one thing? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm a terrible meditator. I was thrown out of a college meditating class because <laughs> I couldn't concentrate, you know. <laughs> Um, I'm not kidding. And, and, you know, I just struggle with it probably like a lot of people listening, but I think what Jeremy is pointing to, and I was really true to me is treat this like a diet or an exercise regime, right? Mm -hmm. You do three things to make your back stronger and we should do three things to make our minds a little bit clearer and more balanced. I do it before I go to bed. I lie there and I say, what are three things I'm really grateful for? You know? And up pops my family and my work uh, and, and something else. And sometimes it's a struggle. That's really, it's just an exercise. There's nothing mystical about this. It's just, just developing a practice. But I think one of the benefits of the pandemic for me is that I have more time to meditate. Mm. And I was, I, I was a very similarly uh, uneven meditator. I mean, days would go by, you know, when I would not do it. And, and uh, now I think... Having having the daily practice has made an enormous difference to me. Uh, it's helped me be more productive. You know, that's interesting. Prior to the pandemic, I had dabbled in meditation and gravitated toward it in concept, but I didn't really commit to a consistent practice. But when the pandemic hit and I was forced to stop being such a busy person, I began to make it a priority again and cultivate a more regular meditation practice. In fact, a friend of mine who is a happiness coach. And let me just pause and say, of course, I was like a happiness coach. What? I don't even know what that is. Really? There's such a thing. And I sort of teased her a little bit about it, which I'm sure you've gotten Docker. <laughs> right? And worse. Uh, and so it turns out that the daily practice of gratitude that you speak of, or citing three things to be grateful for every day, are some of the very actions that she recommended and that I'm now doing. So I must acknowledge you both for this newfound practice. Mm. Mm. Well, Judge Fogel, how has your experience as a judge led to your passion for mindfulness and how could it help others? So when I originally got interested in this, it was not because of anything in my judicial work. Um, I was just at a point in my life when I was feeling a lot of stress. Actually, it's kind of the irony of it is one of the things that was causing me stress that I was had been nominated for the district court. And, you know, then as now um, the political environment was tense and nominations were sometimes contentious and I didn't know what was going to happen. And and so so I was looking for ways to kind of deal with the kind of intense stress I was feeling then. And uh, my wife and I went to a um, mindfulness-based stress reduction class. It's called MBSR. I mean, that's that's the short for it. And it's, it originally was, uh, was offered by hospitals as a way of reducing pain. It was a, it was a pain reduction practice. And um, it's an eight-week class, and you learn to meditate. And it's a very, very simple kind of meditation. It's, it's essentially breathing, and there's some usually guided uh, breathing exercises. And I really liked it, you know, and I just said, this is great. You know, and I, I after, even after eight weeks of doing it, I felt less stressed. And I could sort of see the, the, the benefits in, in terms of reducing my own stress. And so that's how I got started. Somewhere along the lines, I realized that it was very, very influential in the way I was judging because it, it strengthened certain attributes that I had and, and, and allowed me to deploy them in, in better ways. And I'll just summarize briefly what the, what the three areas were. One of them was in uh, dealing with repetitive tasks, which, I mean, most professionals deal with repetitive tasks. Judges deal with certain kinds of repetitive tasks. And the one that 
when I talk to judges, they always bring up is taking guilty pleas, you know, but there's probably half a dozen other ones that are repetitive. It's, you've, you've done one, you've done 10,000. And, and the thing is, maybe for you that's true, but it's not true for the defendant. You know, it's not true for the person on the other side of the bench. And, and so it's very easy to kind of get into a, a mindless or, or rote kind of recitation of those kinds of tasks. And one of the things that mindfulness practice did for me was it made me realize that each one of those moments is a, a unique moment that has never happened before and will never happen again. I mean, it's the idea that, that every moment you approach, you approach with a beginner's mind. And, and so it made a huge difference in the way I dealt with those kinds of proceedings in my courtroom. I mean, I, I mean demeanor and, and kindness to litigants has always been important to me, but I think this enhanced it in a way that, that I didn't see coming, you know, that, that it really was like remembering that each one of these proceedings is a unique moment. And, and what happens is if you treat it that way, that the people who are on the other side of it, the lawyers, the litigants, the family of the litigants, the, the victims, everybody who's affected by that notices that you're paying attention. And it makes a huge difference. It's this, it's this kind of procedural fairness piece that's so important in, in, in the courts. So that was one. Another one was uh, this area, which is a very hot topic these days, about, about implicit assumptions or implicit bias. It's not that people have bad intentions. It's not that people are prejudiced, necessarily. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, we all have our life experiences. And so the, the, the easy uh, response in any situation is to act on the basis of what we know. It's it's just it, it's 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 a it's a human trait to do that as human quality, and sometimes when you do that it's fine, and sometimes when you do that it's not fine because because what you know may cause you to misperceive what somebody else is doing or who somebody else is, and it's just you're not you're not always aware of the gaps in your knowledge, you're not always aware of how your unconscious mind is is operating, and what mindfulness practice enables one to do is you could slow down and say, okay, so here's this person who I'm dealing with, and this person is different from me in half a dozen ways that, I'm, that are obvious to me and maybe others that aren't. And, and so I'm gonna just stop for a minute and say, well, what do I actually know here, right? What do I actually know here? I mean, an example that I, that I always love because it's, so, it's such a funny one, but it's, you know, you can show people a picture of, of Snoop Dogg and Martha Stewart and who are good <laughs> friends, right? And you, and you show them that picture and, and you say, well, which one of these people is the convicted felon? <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, you know, you, you probably know because you're paying attention to these things that it's not Snoop Dogg, it's Martha Stewart. But if you were just doing it on the basis of appearances, you might very well, if you're a white person especially, you might very well have made, made the opposite assumption. So, so I think one of, the, one of the ways mindfulness can be very helpful is to slow you down enough so that you can be curious and you can ask ask questions. And, and I think that's very useful for judges, you know, because it's too easy to take shortcuts. And then I think the third is, has to do with demeanor and, and uh, how you treat people in the courtroom. Because, you know, let's face it, I mean, we all have bad days. And this is not just true for judges, it's true for clerks, courtroom deputy clerks, and, you know, people behind the counter in the clerk's office and probation officers and everybody else who works in the court system. Uh, you have a bad day. And you get short with people, you get impatient. And I think mindfulness is really helpful in helping you regulate that. You know, that you, you can, you, you're more aware of the, oh, gosh, I just have nothing this afternoon. You know, I'm, I'm just feeling so impatient. I'm feeling so tired. If I hear one more com complaint, I'm going to throw the, literally, <laughs> you know. And it's like, if you know that that's what's going on for you, you can say, okay, well, t this afternoon, I'm going to take a 10 minute break, you know, at three o'clock. You know, or I'm gonna, or I'm gonna slow down. Or I'm gonna, I'm gonna be doubly focused on not being impatient with people. You know, it's like it's just having that additional presence of mind. So, all of these, the, all of these, I think, desirable goals are really helped by mindfulness practice. And 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 it's 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 good for the health and wellness of the judges, and it's good for the people who come into the courtroom, and it's good for the people who interact with the judges. I love those examples. <laughs> Especially the Snoop Dogg, Martha Stewart one. I think that that's a great <laughs> reminder for us all. In our final segment today, we'll talk about how mindfulness is more than just a woo-woo way of thinking, and how gratitude, music, and reading is bringing us joy even in the darkest times. We'll be right back.
So, Docker, on September the 1st, a book was released that you are one of the co-editors on, The Gratitude Project, How the Science of Thankfulness Can Rewire Our Brains for Resilience, Optimism, and the Greater Good. Can you share some of the highlights of this book, and how much does gratitude play into our ability to achieve happiness? Gratitude is very powerful. I think some of the highlights in the gratitude literature are Number one, it helps kids with uh, academics. And so a lot of parents, probably many of our audiences, our audience out there are dealing with Zoom education. And my condolences, you know, it's tough. Uh, Gratitude helps young kids do better in school. uh, And that one matters. Uh, Number two, I always love neuroscience. When you practice gratitude, um, reward circuits in your brain are activated. And that's always impressive because it tells us that through the process of evolution, uh, gratitude has kind of rewired our, hence the term, our nervous systems to make it rewarding to uh, express your appreciation to other people, right? And, And people note that subjectively. They'll say, God, you know, when I said thank you to my, my partner or you know, when my teenager actually mumbled thank you for cooking dinner for the thousandth time, I tear up and I feel this glow. And we know gratitude produces the neurophysiology of reward and uh, vagal tone and so forth. So that's good news and surprising. And then I would say that for me, a um, third highlight of this work is how good it is for work and performance. And, you know, I wrote about this in Har- the Harvard Business Review, uh, just managers, judges, uh, coworkers, if they just kind of reorient a little bit to gratitude, just to saying thank you, reflecting at a meeting like, hey, what are we grateful for here? Just for a minute, work goes better. Hard work, medical work, judiciary work, uh, academic scientific work, So to me, I'm always looking for highlights in terms of what does it do to the body? Is it good for kids? Uh, And then what's it doing in the in the adversarial world of, you know, legal decision making or science? And, And it's good news. So thanks for maintaining the book. Yeah, you're welcome. I look forward to reading it. Well, speaking of books, a question to both of you. Is there a specific book, a quote song, or even a piece of artwork that has resonated with you as you've been moving through this pandemic that you could share with our audience. And Docker, no cheating. It can't be one that you wrote or co-edited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love this question, Jen, and um, I actually have a very geeky answer to it. So I, I was interviewed for a, a book called My Morning Routine, which is a book about what people do in the morning to get their day started. And you know, I, I talked about mine. And, and basically, you know, it, it, it's, it's another one of these mindfulness practice sorts of things. But, the, you know, in, in my case, I, I have a strong cup of coffee and I, I listen to classical music, you know, and that's my kind of my, my way to get the, the day going. And um, I've noticed, you know, since the pandemic started that, that there's a particular kind of classical music that I'm particularly drawn to these days. And it's, it's music that lifts me. Because it's coming back to where we started, you know, at the beginning about anxiety and depression. And there's some music that really lifts me. So so I'm going to mention three uh, composers, you know, who are not exactly, you know, Bach, Beethoven and Mozart. But the music that they wrote, they wrote them during very dark times, They mm. very, you know, during the bubonic plague, you know, or the Hundred Years War, you know, or things like that. And and they they lift me every time I listen to them. So uh, Dietrich Buxtehude, uh, Thomas Tallis, and uh, Giovanni Palestrina. You know, th- these are all people who, who compose choral music, among other things. And it was just, I, I can listen to that and I just feel the lift. I feel the spirituality in the music and that helps my day get going, you know. So uh, I said it was going to be a geeky answer. And then there's one more contemporary musician who does the same for me. And it's a, a singer named Eva Cassidy, um, who um, had a short and wonderful life and uh, created some beautiful music. And and it was the same thing. I listened to her sing 
and I just get lifted up. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, I think it's more, it's more le- less the details than it is what happens. I think that's mm-hmm. the, that's the thing that I would pick on. Judge Fogel, I don't think that's a geeky answer at all. Uh, Ava Cassidy, her rendition of Somewhere Over the Rainbow is one of the most beautiful that I've ever listened to. And a little known fact, I studied opera for seven years. So uh, (laughs) classical music, Vivaldi's Gloria is one of my favorites that I've sung. Uh, I can very much resonate with what you have to say. Thank you for sharing that with our audience. What, What a riff. And what a great question. And the question speaks to the power of mindfulness, which is as you practice mindfulness for those eight minutes a day, suddenly you you realize how much music means to you. Music is great for the body and mind, how much visual art, how much the right kind of film means to you. And it does sort of return you to to really what matters. Um, You know, so I'm going to, this is a little bit geeky, but, um, you know, it's interesting um, during the pandemic, I've been listening to more music and actually Spotify reached out and they've been noticing this too. Like people are really looking for uplifting, mo- moving music. And for me, it was, um, the, it's actually a musical movement that began in the music department at Berkeley, which is minimalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has classical extensions and pop extensions. The, you know, Lamonte Young, John Adams, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, as the classical versions, and then Brian Eno, who's, you know, for the younger people out That's there, <laughs> his ambient music transformed my life. I am embarrassed to say, I think I've listened to some of his songs uh, potentially 10,000 times every day, mm-hmm. and they're mindless. And then, and then just to, you know, since you asked, my friend Casper Turquil has a book out on how to bring ritual back to American life. And his first recommendation is to find your sacred texts, words, books, quotes, poems that just make meaning for you. And my dad uh, got me reading Walt Whitman early in life, the great American poet. Uh, And I uh, reread Leaves of Grass and Song of Myself and then his later interviews recently for work. And they're mind-blowing. Um, it is the American spirit of diversity and democracy and kindness, mm. really profound kindness. And I teach, I put that stuff up when I teach quotes from his poems. So for your audience, it really is an interesting question. What is your sacred text, right? And to go to it. Um, and the pandemic got me reading Walt Whitman and it, it revitalized many things. What a fantastic array of musical artists and authors you've referenced, Docker. I think this time period has brought many of us back to things that we've either neglected or forgotten in our life, be it reading, music, or family time. And I have a feeling that some of our listeners are going to be upping their musical playlists <laughs> and picking out some new books to read. Speaking of, I used to be an avid reader, but I found that I fell into the rabbit hole of a busier-than-thou existence over the last several years. And then a friend of mine gave me a copy of the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, Mm. which I mentioned because that's the book that has resonated with me personally throughout this pandemic. As the title insinuates, the author talks about creating daily habits instead of goals. For example, instead of saying, I should really walk today, or my goal is to run a marathon— Instead of setting a goal I might never attain, thereby setting myself up for potential failure or by guilting myself into something using words like should, instead, I'm creating the simple habit of putting on my tennis shoes every day at 5 p.m. with the intention of going out for a walk. So by creating that habit, I'm telling my mind and my body, hey, it's time to exercise. So now every day at 5 p.m., I start getting antsy if I'm not putting on my tennis shoes. It's been such a neat way to reprogram my mind and my body. The new habits I've formed have led me to exercise more frequently and cultivate a better meditation practice, among so many other things. I think this speaks to some of the performance-oriented concerns that some of our listeners have expressed, such as, gosh, you know, I don't even have time to get XYZ task done. It's all I can do to get through one day in this pandemic. But by taking time to create better habits— I've personally found that my daily tasks have become more manageable and my outlook more hopeful. So to that, what makes each of you feel hopeful and optimistic as we work through the continued challenges of life in this pandemic? 
I would say, you know, that, that actually is a pretty easy question for me because the pandemic has changed my life in ways that were unexpected and I think have made my life better. And I think that's been been true for other people, too. Um, so, you know, you can you can think about all of the obvious tragedy and all of the obvious pain and suffering. And, and it's it's all real and it's all really hard to, to see. Um, and uh, at the same time, you know, as you know, Jen, I mean, I was traveling around and teaching here and there and doing this program and that. And 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 actually that lifestyle, although I really enjoyed getting to see the world and getting to know so many wonderful people, it, it, it's it's hard on you. You know, you don't take care of yourself quite as well when you're doing that. And and I had a much harder time kind of establishing routines. And what this time has done for me is it's really helped me set my life up in a way that is 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 positive. You know, I can I mean, I, I look forward to each day and I look forward to the the work I'm going to get done and the things that, that I'm going to do and the interactions I'm going to have with people. And it's more it's it's easier to actually do that. It feels less less complicated in some way. And it's also opened up a lot of things. We were talking about that earlier, just the the the, the benefits of this kind of communication. Uh, you know, it, it's not for everything and everyone, but it, it, it does open up possibilities. It does. Uh, I, I'm doing a lot of um, international work now that, you know, in, in the pre pandemic era, you know, I would have had to get on an airplane and fly for 20 hours to somewhere and be exhausted when I got there. And, and, um, you know, and, and now I to just do, do a Zoom or a Skype or something with someone and, and we can we can do some really good stuff together. And so I think that make, it just makes me hopeful to think that you know, even at a really bad time like this, you, know, you see ways that people can connect better and, and, and be more uh, productive. And, and it's given, certainly given me more time to be contemplative about my own life. I think one other thing I would add, and of course, this depends totally on circumstances and, and, and you know, whether you're in a position where you can be with other people, whether your, your bubble includes other people, it's, it's made me closer to the people in my bubble, mm. you know, which in, in this case is my, my spouse and my, my, my daughter and son-in-law and grandchildren. And, and e- even my son and, son and daughter-in-law and their children, who I don't see physically, that relationship has changed, too. There, there's some way that the, the the appreciation of the people in my life has been sharpened by this, and that makes me hopeful. And I think a lot of it just has to do with kind of the force slowing down, you know. And, uh, I think that's that's what I would say. Yeah, I feel um, I feel really hopeful from conversations like these. That wow, there's this ancient tradition, this wisdom. All cultures have it: mindfulness, etc. There's a new science. And it's really relevant to medicine and law and, and, you know, criminal justice and the like. So that makes me hopeful. Um, I, too, I, I feel like, um, you know, part of happiness and mindfulness is also uh, a conversation about poverty, economic inequality, and race in the United States, which diminish our happiness. We have published science on that. And I feel like with COVID affecting you know, people of color and poor people disproportionately, Black Lives Matter, et cetera. Our conversation about race right now is unlike anything I've seen in the 30 years I've been tracking it. And a lot of people say 50 years. And I'm really hopeful. Uh, I'm very excited about where that's going. And then I, I think that, you know, what you've just created, Jen, is what's happening at our culture more generally, which is people are asking this question of like, what can I shift in my relationship with my partner or how I work that makes work more meaningful, that makes my life more meaningful? We've been hungering for that opportunity, and I think a lot of good will come out of it. And I will just say, I'm out here in California. Uh, the, the evidence of we've been predicting fires through climate crisis analyses for 20 years. They're here. It's very real. Uh, and the conversation is different. Uh, and will lead to better outcomes. Yeah, and I, I just want to second those last couple of points that Dr. made about them. I've been frustrated, I guess, is the only word I can use, the quality of the conversation or the lack thereof uh, about about structural racism um, my whole life. I mean, I grew up in an integrated part of the world. I, I saw it when I was growing up. 
And I think it's different now, too. I think you can actually talk about it in a way that you couldn't talk about it before. So that that makes me very hopeful that those conversations are taking place. And I'm hopeful that our listeners walk away from this episode feeling invigorated, feeling that there are achievable actions that they can take to better manage their health and wellness during these stressful times. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience before we end today? Well, we, we greatergood.berkeley.edu. Uh, we have a million readers, 500,000 people trying our practices. It's free. It's secular. Uh, it's all science-based. It's a, a free resource. And, and, and it got me to uh, lots of good things in this conversation. Yeah. And I, I could not recommend it more highly. I am on there. Their, their Twitter feed and, and get get the emails and it just, it just it's I'm always happy to see them in my inbox and you know, so um, and I think you know that's just so so that and I also am just very grateful to uh, the FJC uh, for hosting us and to you Jen for moderating yeah. and Maisha for her tech support and uh, you know this is great just to see this kind of information getting out to this audience. It's, it's, it's a real, it's a really good thing. So I want to just express my gratitude for, for that. Me too. Well, I am grateful for both of you for taking this time that we have shared today. Judge Fogel, Dr. Keltner, thank you for your research and your insights. It's been an absolute pleasure having the opportunity to talk with both of you. Same here. Same here. 